in this labyrinth, the Phantom of the Opera, in Eric's times, and ours. Hello everyone, and welcome, finally, to episode 5 of In This Labyrinth. I am your host, Phantom Femme, of course. And first of all, huge thanks, as always, to everyone who's tuned in for the previous four episodes. I have to say it's super cool to watch my download stats grow. And thanks, of course, for tuning back in for this episode five. And also welcome to any new listeners who are joining us now for the first time. It's awesome. Thank you. I hope you've all enjoyed the previous episodes, and I hope you will enjoy this one, too. And thanks also for your patience with me in getting this episode out, and major apologies that it's so damn late. Offline life has been rather nuts this month, because, as I think I've mentioned in previous episodes, I'm doing a doctorate, and as part of that, I work as a teaching assistant. And in Canada, teaching assistants are unionized, thank God, but that means contract negotiations every few years, and this year, that meant an epic strike. And though I absolutely support my union and the things we were struggling for, that was exhausting. As an aside, that's partly why it's been so damn hard to actually get on schedule for the past four episodes, because I was trying to do them during the strike. Which was great and awesome, but yeah, as I said, exhausting. And then once the strike was over, because it started back at the end in the last weeks of the winter semester, which tells you how long we were out on strike for, there was work left hanging from the end of the winter term that had to be remediated and final grades gotten in and all that stuff. So that's been taking up this month. And then I have family visiting both to visit and to help me with some epic jobs that have needed doing. We cleaned out my storage closet and worked on some major decluttering. And so with all that, it's been kind of hard to find time and energy to record. Thus, this episode being so late getting out. So, yeah, thank you all again hugely for your patience with all that. Some awesome news in the meantime, though. This podcast is now up on both iTunes and Google Play, and I'm working on getting it up on Spotify and Stitcher as well. On iTunes, you can find it by searching In This Labyrinth. You can also find it by searching for Phantom of the Opera as keywords, as a keyword. But if you do that, you have to click See All Podcasts to find it. And I imagine something similar should work on Google Play as well, although I'm not as familiar with that platform. So, that gives you all lots of new ways to subscribe and listen to the podcast. I would be very greatly obliged if folks would subscribe to the podcast on both of those platforms and tell other people about it too and tell them to subscribe to it on those platforms. And, of course, I would be ever so obliged if folks would rate and review the podcast on both of those platforms as well, and of course on Spotify and Stitcher once I get it up on there, if they have those kind of features as well, which I'm assuming they probably do. So, with all that being said, let's get on to what I actually want 
to talk about in this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. So, as I hinted at last time, in this episode, I want to talk about the title song from Phantom. In the libretto, it's Act 1, Scene 4, and on whatever soundtrack you have, whatever version or iteration of the soundtrack you have, it's going to be the track actually entitled The Phantom of the Opera. And as I alluded to last episode, it's the song that really first made me a fan. It is the song that first made me fall completely and utterly and absolutely in love with Phantom of the Opera. And so since this past month was my 28th, wow, fanniversary, huge thanks to the person on fanfiction.net who coined that term, I wanted to talk about some of the reasons why that song in particular was what made me a fan and what made me fall in love with Phantom. And talk about some of the reasons why, even all these years later, it's still my favorite song from Phantom and still my favorite part of the show when I see it live. Because I feel like that song is often kind of written off and dismissed, even by fans, as just, oh well, Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted to throw in a rock song, so he did. But I've always felt that there was a lot more going on in that song and in that scene than just that. And so I wanted to talk about some of the things that I feel like are going on in that song, in that scene, that I feel like get overlooked a lot. As I said, even by fans. And, of course, that song also contains the line from which this podcast gets its name. So I wanted to dedicate an episode to exploring it for that reason as well. So, first of all, although, as I mentioned last episode, the stage version, in a very postmodern way, tends to not give concrete details like how long the Phantom's been teaching Christine or how he came to want to teach her or how she came to take lessons from him, it does give you a very concise, very condensed snapshot of their relationship as master and student up to the point where he brings her down to his lair for the first time. And it gives you that snapshot in the title song. And what a relationship! And here I have to say that part of the brilliance of that song is in its ability to convey a very complex, very complicated relationship very succinctly, in a very condensed way. And credit for that really has to go both to Charles Hart's lyrics and, in this case, to Andrew Lloyd Webber's orchestration, because a lot of how that is conveyed is, in the very simple but compact lyrics, but also in the music itself, in the way that song is orchestrated. So the first thing about this relationship that that song tells us is that there's way more going on in it than just the Phantom teaching Christine to sing. This is way more than just a simple instructional relationship. So first of all, if you listen to the verb tenses in the first verse of the title song, and grammarians will have to correct me on the proper technical term for this, but they're past tense, but ongoing. So, quote, in sleep he sang to me, in dreams he came, that voice which calls to me and speaks my name, and do I dream again, for now I find, unquote. So those verb tenses tell us that this 
ability apparently of the phantom to project himself into her mind into her dreams has been an ongoing feature of their relationship up to this point and leading into the next line quote the phantom of the opera is there inside my mind quote that and do i dream again leading into it suggests to me at least that she has known all along that her angel of music was also the Phantom of the Opera. Now, you're never told how she knows that, but, as I said, to me, those lines imply that she does know that. In addition, as I said, to his apparently having this ability to project himself into her dreams and into her mind. And then in the next verse, you kind of get that part of their relationship, that aspect of their relationship, from the Phantom side. So he refers to, quote, our strange duet, unquote, and it's unclear whether he's referring to their lessons, to what they sing in their lessons, or perhaps to their entire relationship as a strange duet. And that's interesting because a duet implies a partnership of two equal voices, even though the next line is that famous, quote, my power over you grows stronger yet, unquote, which tying back into the suggestion in the first verse that he can project himself into her mind and into her dreams, suggests a power dynamic much broader and deeper and more all-encompassing than just an ordinary teacher-student relationship. And then, of course, he reaffirms or reiterates the mental or sort of hypnotic part of their relationship with the great, quote, and though you turn from me to glance behind, the phantom of the opera is there inside your mind, unquote. What's really interesting, though, is that although all this would seem to describe a very complex, complicated relationship, the music, the accompaniment under these first two verses of the song is actually quite stark. Mostly you hear just the running bass with shots of accompaniment from the strings for rhythmic emphasis. The more complex accompaniment doesn't start till the third verse. And so that suggests that this sort of Svengali-esque master-student, master-protege power dynamic is actually only one level, is only the surface level, is only the tip of the iceberg. And that's, I would suggest borne out by the lyrics of verses 3 and 4, which start to describe not only more complex, more complicated, but also more reciprocal relationship between the Phantom and Christine. So in the third verse, it describes an awareness on both of their parts, on Christine's part as well as on the Phantom's, that she is both his face and his voice to the world. Quote, those who have seen your face draw back in fear, I am the mask you wear, unquote. And then the phantom responds with, quote, it's me they hear, unquote. And this is really interesting because two scenes later in Act 1, Scene 6, the first unmasking, it's at least apparently implied that Christine naively does not realize that the phantom is deformed, disfigured. And yet, this verse, these lines from the title song, clearly suggest that she is aware that he's hiding from the world. But in typical stage version fashion, 
the audience is simply left to fill in the blanks as to how much she's aware of, how much she guesses, how much she knows. You're never told. And then the last lines of that verse kind of take their relationship onto a spiritual level as well. Quote, your spirit and my voice in one combined. The Phantom of the Opera is there inside your slash my mind, unquote. And of course, it's your slash my spirit and your slash my voice because they're singing this together at that point. And then, of course, the whole rest of the opera house, the whole rest of the opera company is brought into this relationship in an uneasy tension because you have the offstage voices saying the, quote, he's there, the phantom of the opera, beware the phantom of the opera, unquote. And then finally, except that it's not actually the end of the song, we get to the fourth verse, which, as I mentioned last episode, contains what are perhaps some of the most important and certainly some of the most overlooked lines in terms of their importance in the whole show, where the Phantom says to Christine, quote, in all your fantasies, you always knew that man and mystery, unquote, and Christine replies, quote, we're both in you, unquote. And notice how the way the lines are divided between them, divided between the Phantom and Christine, mirrors the way they're divided in the third verse, so that that sense of balance, of reciprocity, of symmetry is emphasized. So then these lines of the fourth verse do two critically important things. First of all, as I said last episode, they imply, they suggest that however much Christine has let herself get into character, as it were, as the innocent ingenue being taught by the Angel of Music slash Phantom of the Opera, that on some level she is aware that her teacher is a man, is human, that he is not actually a supernatural being. Now, as I mentioned last episode, you're never told how she knows this or on what level she is or has allowed herself to be aware of it, but still, these lines imply that she is, on some level, fully aware that this is a role play. And they imply, at least to me, that she consents to this role play. And so there's also a suggestion that this Christine, the Christine of the stage version, is not quite the overly childlike, overly gullible, overly naive, innocent of the LaRue novel. And then secondly, and relatedly, these lines ground this very complex, complicated relationship of role-play and power dynamics in the Phantoms and Christine's humanity. But at the same time, they also make the Phantoms and Christine's humanity part of this complex, complicated relationship. They remind us that these are two human beings living out this relationship. And then that verse, the fourth verse, closes with the lines from which this podcast takes its name, quote, And in this labyrinth where night is blind, the phantom of the opera is there inside your slash my mind, unquote. Again, sung by both the phantom and Christine together. And interestingly, I think you can read these lines, I think there's a case for reading these lines as a hint or a foretaste of what's coming up in Music of the Night. 
the suggestion that in order to fully enter into the Phantom's world, you have to let go of, quote, the garish light of day, unquote, or the normative gaze, and let yourself be open to other ways of seeing or experiencing the world and people. And that's cool. That's interesting. I actually never noticed that until thinking about those lines for this podcast episode. So these third and fourth verses then complicate and add complexity to the seemingly straightforward sort of Svengali-esque master-slash-protege power dynamic portrayed in the first two verses. And as I alluded to before, that added complication and complexity is reflected in the music, in the orchestration, as well as in the lyrics. So, whereas, as I said before, the accompaniment under the first two verses is quite stark and quite simple, the accompaniment under the third and fourth verses, and especially under the high vocal part after the fourth verse, becomes increasingly elaborate. The vocal lines stay quite plain, even if Christine's goes extremely high in the part after the fourth verse, but the accompaniment underneath becomes increasingly rhythmically complex. So in the third verse, for example, you can still hear the running bass of the first two verses, but you can also hear that it's been overlaid by a simple rhythmic vamp or riff that repeats throughout that verse. And then in the fourth verse, you actually can't really hear the original running bass anymore, although I think it's still there, because it's been fully overlaid in the fourth verse and the high part afterwards. It's been fully overlaid by a sequence of much more complex, much more complicated rhythmic and melodic vamps or riffs, sort of ground bass vamps or melodic riffs that play out underneath the vocal line and the backbeat throughout the rest of the song. You can't hear all this so well on the OLC, the original London cast recording, but you can hear it really clearly. You can hear the increasing rhythmic complexity that I'm describing really clearly on the Canadian soundtrack, on the Mexican soundtrack, and on the Viennese uh, cast recording soundtrack. But you can hear it on the OLC, too, if you listen closely and or if you're able to tweak your audio EQ settings to bring out the bass line. The orchestration of the title song, though, does more than just echo the complexity, the increasing complexity of the relationship described in the lyrics. It also adds an element that is not explicit in the lyrics. Actually, it adds two elements that are not explicit in the lyrics. The first of these is that it implies a sensuality and an eroticism to the Phantom and Christine's relationship, to the Phantom and Christine's master-slash-protégé or ingenue relationship that is not explicit in the lyrics, but I think is implied by the elements of a rock song in the orchestration of the title song. So the increasingly complex bass line, the backbeat, of course, and the fact that the title song has Christine singing down in her lower register, one of the few times in the show in which she does so, and I think the only time in the show in which it actually has her singing down below middle C. And of course, in the Western musical tradition, that lower part of a woman's register 
tends of a woman's vocal register tends to be associated with sensuality and sexuality as opposed to the higher part of a woman's a soprano's register which tends to be associated with purity and innocence and then you've got the phantom singing in a very high tenor range so you've got that classic pop rock combination of low woman's register and high tenor and you've got them singing as i said a fairly plain vocal line over this increasingly complicated complex bass and backbeat so then all these elements together evoke a sensuality and an eroticism not necessarily an active or activated or actualized sexuality but a sensuality and an eroticism that then becomes a subtext to what's actually being said in the lyrics to the title song and is i think implied to be a part or a tension in the phantom and christine's relationship as master and protege but then these rock song elements also bring the story into the contemporary they signal to the audience that the story that they're seeing on stage that we're seeing on stage is not just a quaint historical fiction but is as much about us now today as it is about people back in the 1880s or whatever now of course i didn't register all of this at a conscious level right away back when i first heard that song back when i first became a fan back when that song first made me a fan that took a lot of years of thinking and analyzing and unpacking to get at and to understand consciously what it was about that song about that song in particular that i reacted so strongly and so passionately to and here i have to take a pause to give a shout out to the sheer brilliance of hal prince's staging and maria bjornson's set design in the scene that contains that song in the stage musical in act 1 scene 4 because it is some of the most symbolically rich symbolically richly packed theater and staging you will ever see condensed into 5 minutes i could do a whole other episode and will at some point on the richness of the symbolism of the staging of that scene but for now suffice it to say that the staging and the set design reflects and echoes the complexity of the relationship being described in the lyrics between the phantom and christine and being underscored pun intended in the music and ahem just a heads up the next minute or two are going to contain some spoilers so like the accompaniment the staging of the first two verses of the song is very stark all you see is the phantom leading christine across the travelator thingies across the top of the stage holding the lantern as he and christine are describing this svengali like master/protege power dynamic between them and it's very darkly lit you can just see a bit of light across the top of the stage you can hardly see the phantom and christine what you see most is the phantom's lantern and then in the third verse you get a fuller more lush richer set as they get down to the level of stage from the travelators and as they get to the lake and get into the boat and sail across the lake with the candles that 
very famous scene, that absolutely iconic image of the Phantom and Christine in the boat with the candles. And then in the fourth verse, they actually get across the lake to the lair, and the audience gets to see the full, fully fledged, fully fleshed out set of the Phantom's lair. And the high part after the fourth verse, where you kind of get to see this complex, complicated relationship in action, takes place actually in the Phantom's lair. And what's brilliant, one of the many things that's brilliant about this staging, is that the Phantom and Christine's journey down through what are supposed to be the levels of the five cellars below the opera house becomes kind of a journey down through the many levels and layers of their relationship as it's being described in the lyrics and played out, literally, pun intended, sorry, in the music. And here I have to give a huge shout-out to Isabeau of WAGProductions.org for the awesome podcast artwork, because I wanted an image that would capture what I feel is going on in that song, the sense of journeying down through the levels of the labyrinth to the Phantom's lair, and in doing so, journeying through the levels of their relationship. And and I think the concept that we came up with and that she rendered for me really does that beautifully and powerfully. And it was very much inspired not only by the lyrics and music of that song, but also by Hal Prince's staging and Maria Bjornsson's brilliant design of that scene that I was just talking about. But there's one more element of the title song that I think makes it especially awesome and powerful, and that is, I think, really why it caught my attention so powerfully and made me a fan. Though, I have to say that with everything else that I've discussed so far, I've been able to cite elements, I've been able to reference elements from the lyrics or the music or the staging to tell you how I get what I'm getting. But for this last element, I have to say that even after all these years, I'm honestly still not sure how I get this out of the title song. But anyway, I felt right from the very first time I heard it that that song was doing more than just describing the relationship that is, that exists up to that point between the Phantom and Christine. I've always felt that it was also giving you, the listener, the audience, a glimpse, a tantalizing glimpse, a tantalizing foretaste of the relationship that could be between them. And maybe it's because it is a slight genre shift from the rest of the music of the show that makes it feel sort of like a time out of time from the rest of the story. Or maybe it's because when I first, when that song first made me a fan, it was because I heard it out of context. I had no idea where it fit in the show or the story, what was happening before or afterwards. So I was kind of just able to hear that song on its own terms and let my imagination run with it. But yeah, I've always felt that that song gives you a glimpse of what could be, and the what could be that it gives you a glimpse of is something incredibly awesome, is a very brave, daring, courageous, very much non-normative relationship between the Phantom and Christine. A relationship not 
based on stripping away all the role plays and disguises to the quote-unquote true, quote-unquote, person behind the mask, but one that actually incorporates those elements of role play and disguise and recognize them recognizes them sorry as true and authentic expressions of self for both the phantom and christine alongside but equal to who they are outside of their role play dynamic and it's a relationship that can do that because there's full knowledge and awareness of, on the Phantom's part, how his face and the life that he's led because of it have forged him into the Phantom of the Opera. And full knowledge on the Phantom's part of Christine's desires and her struggles to be free and to express those desires as a woman in a very repressive society. And so for me, a huge part of the power of the ALW stage version, stage musical, comes from this taste that you're given in the title song to whet your appetite of the relationship that could be between the Phantom and Christine if, and only if, he has the courage to trust her with his face and with his life, and Christine can find the courage to say to hell with society's expectations of who she should be and who and what she should want as a quote-unquote good girl. But also, the power of the stage version for me comes from the contrast between that glimpse of what could be and the final layer, which shows you what all too often is, what all too often happens when that courage isn't found. And that contrast is where I get the sense that I mentioned last episode of call to action in the stage version as well. Because it shows you that stark reality of the tragedy of what all too often is, and then throws it back in your court to say, okay, what are you prepared to do about it? Are you prepared to go out and build a world where that shit doesn't happen? But it also gives you that taste of possibility. It also gives you that taste of the awesomeness that could be if we can find the courage to go out there and make it happen. And of course, the stage version is presenting this or talking about this at an interpersonal level, at the level of interpersonal relationships, but it's easy, or I find that it's easy anyway, to expand that idea or that principle outwards to imagining and therefore working for a world without ableism slash racism slash homophobia, etc., and to imagining and working for a world where everybody has what they need to live with dignity. So, I hope you've all enjoyed this discussion of the title song, or rather, this first discussion of the title song, because it's definitely a topic I'll come back to in future episodes. There's a lot more to say about it and a lot more to explore in there. At the very least, as I said... I want to do an episode, I'm not sure when I'll do it, but I definitely want to do an episode in which I really dig into the symbolism that's packed into the staging of that scene. Or rather, that whole sequence from the end of Angel of Music through Music of the Night, because it's very rich and very brilliant. But in the meantime, I hope I've given you all a lot to think about. 
And as always, I would love to hear your feedback on this episode or on any episode. And there's lots of ways you can do that. You can tweet at the show at ITL Podcast. And of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at ITL Podcast 2. You can also like or follow the Facebook page for the show, which you can find by searching In This Labyrinth on Facebook. The page is called In This Labyrinth, The Phantom of the Opera in Eric's Times and Hours, but just searching In This Labyrinth should bring it up. And also searching In This Labyrinth should bring up the Facebook group. As I've mentioned before, there's a Facebook group as well as the Facebook page that I created exactly to have a space for more interactive discussion and sharing of ideas and resources. And the Facebook group, too, is called In This Labyrinth, The Phantom of the Opera in Eric's Times and Ours. And again, searching In This Labyrinth on Facebook should bring it up. There's also a link to to the Facebook page on the podcast website. And the podcast website URL is http colon slash slash in this labyrinth dot fireside dot fm. There is a link to the Facebook page there on the podcast website. And there's a link to the Facebook group on the Facebook page. So there's lots of ways to find and interact with the show. And as I said, I would love to hear your feedback on this episode or on any other episode. And, of course, you can also send an old-fashioned email to inthislabyrinth at yahoo.com. As I said, it seems weird to call email old-fashioned, but I suppose these days it kind of is. Oh, And as I mentioned earlier, you can also now rate and review the show on iTunes as well. And I would be ever so thrilled and delighted if folks would do that because it'll help the podcast become more visible, more searchable, and help more folks find it. So thank you all again very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll tune back in for the next one. I have a really awesome and exciting episode planned for next time. I'm still waiting to see if it's going to come together, but hopefully, if it does, next episode will be my first ever interview. And hopefully that'll come out sometime in mid-September, hopefully somewhere around September 15th. So stay tuned for that, because that is going to rock, and have a great and phantom-filled time until then. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenters and do not reflect the views of the host, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Cameron McIntosh, the Really Useful Group, or any other person or entity. In addition, this podcast is not in any way affiliated with Andrew Lloyd Webber, the Really Useful Group, Cameron McIntosh, or with any other person or entity involved in the production of any version of Phantom. Copyright Notice The contents of this podcast, including intro music, are copyright Phantom Femme. The podcast artwork is copyright Isabeau of WAGProductions.org.